From the city of Beaky Blinders, Birmingham, England, I would like to introduce you to Paddy Dandar. As the world becomes more automated and the robots take over, it's imperative that we build the right human skills for the future. So pull up a chair, grab a smoser or two, and make yourself very uncomfortable. Hey folks, thank you for joining us for another episode of the Superpower School podcast. I'm your host, Paddy Danda, and in today's episode, we're going to move towards media and television. And so I've got a guest today who has an amazing and inspiring story. He's the author of a book called Constant Comedy, How I Started Comedy Central and Lost My Sense of Humor. Yes, that's right. It's about Comedy Central, the channel that a lot of us have probably come across. And he's a former media executive and happy he's here today because he's actually writing a novel at the moment as well. So he's gone into writing. I'd love to welcome Art Bell to the episode today. Hey, Art, how are you doing? I'm good, Patty. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, no, I'm really looking forward to this, Art, because I remember when I first came across your profile and I was like, wow, this just sounds like an amazing story. And I love stories, uh, especially those that have lots of adversity and challenges along the way. So I'm really keen to know more <laughs> about, you know, how you ended up where you did. But it'd be great if you could share a few thoughts, Art, of your background and what's kind of led you to where you have got to today. Well, I, I loved comedy from the time I was a kid. And I remember being eight years old and watching comedy on television and stand-up comedians and thinking, man, these guys are very powerful. They're making all these people laugh, all the people in the audience, all the people at home. And in those days, people at home, you know, when they were watching a show, there were like 30 million of them. It's not like today with a fragmented audience. So I was very impressed and I wanted to learn more about comedy. So I did you know, I, I started thinking about it. And then I got a little older and found out I was a little bit funny. So I get thrown out of class a lot at school for making jokes. Even if the teacher laughed, I found that was kind of distressing. Like if I could make the teacher laugh, why did she get mad at me and throw me out of class? I learned subsequently that I was disruptive. Anyway, I, I got to high school and started an underground um, newspaper, satirical newspaper called The Tongue. And I found out I loved writing comedy and satire. Yes, we got in trouble for that too. I guess, you know, that's kind of a through line with comedy. You do get in a little bit of trouble now and then. I think the world has seen that more <laughs> in the recent past than ever before. Yeah, we've all seen the slap most recently at the Oscars, yeah. My goodness, we could talk about that for two hours, but we won't. So then I went to college and hung around with some kids who were uh, students, actually, who were interested in comedy as well. And we had a fun time. We did some shows and everything like that and talked about being comedians or being comedy writers and whatever. And then I got interested in economics. I became an economics major. I think it was mostly because I failed my first economics course. I got a 17 out of 100. And I, I just, you know, that was a new experience for me, having not, like, failed too many tests. In my so, sorry, Art, did you say 7-0 or did you say 1-7 there? 1-7, 17, yeah. I, I, wow. It was a very difficult class, and it was my first test when I got to college. And then... You know, when the, when the professor handed it back and I got a 17, it was interesting. I didn't get so upset as much as like, wow, I got to change my approach here. <laughs> Something is horrifyingly wrong. And so I, what I did is I studied very hard and in the process 
kind of got really interested in economics and, and kind of fell in love with it. So I became an ec- economics major, took lots of courses. And when I came out of college, some of my friends were going to LA to become writers. And I said, well, I'm not going to do that. Cause like, Hey, nobody can make a living as a writer in Los Angeles. That's like a, that's like a myth, you know, that you can do that. Of course it wasn't a myth and they became very, very prominent comedy writers. And I went off to Washington DC where I became an economist working for a consulting firm that did work for the Department of Energy and the EPA and some other places. And it was a, it was a really heady time for me. I was very smart in those days and I got to work with very smart people on very thorny problems that uh, needed solving. I did that for three years. Then I thought, okay, I could go to economics grad school, but I really don't want to do that. I'm still interested in comedy and television and film. Yeah, I forgot to mention I was a big film buff. I love movies, saw movies all the time. I knew everything, not everything, but I knew a lot about, you know, movies. So I thought the best move would be to go back to grad school. And that's how I changed the channel. You know, that's a great way to say, okay, I'm going to stop what I'm doing right now. And I'm going to do something completely different, which is going back to school. And I did. Um, Of course, nobody told me at the time that being, you know, getting a a master's in business was not really a quick ticket to to the television industry because that was not necessarily something that the creative people were looking for, certainly. But I figured I'd get in through finance because that was my, you know, that at that point, that was my superpower. I knew economics. I knew finance. So I, while I was at graduate school, I asked, hey, you know, where do the people like me who love television and film and creative stuff hang out? And they said, well, they, you know, there's a lot of creative people here. They, do, they work on something called the Follies, the Wharton Follies. I was at Wharton Graduate School. And it's a satirical musical comedy review that the students write and perform every year. It's really cool. So I went to that meeting and of course I was surprised to see that there were professional dancers and musicians and performers and actors and writers who had come to Wharton to get out of the entertainment business and go to Wall Street. So it was kind of an interesting time and we did a great, we had a great time and a lot of fun putting on a show. Second year I wrote it and I remembered how much I loved writing comedy. And that was around the time I thought, hey, you know, I'd really like to get into the comedy business. Cable television was popping. There was an all news channel, all music channel, all, you know, sports channel. There was no all comedy channel. And I said, you know, I'd really like to work at an all comedy channel, but there isn't one. And that's, I think, when I first started thinking about it. I got a job at CBS that was fairly uh, uninteresting. I was working in finance. Somebody called me from HBO, and HBO in those days, this was the mid-80s, was the kind of the Netflix of television, meaning it was the future of television, and it had changed television drastically already by putting on f- uncut movies and uncut comedy from very famous and very talented comedians like Robin Williams and Whoopi Goldberg. And you couldn't see that on television their, their acts uncut anywhere else. So anyway, somebody calls me from HBO and said, hey, they're looking for someone to do subscriber forecasting. You know, you're the only guy in the business I know who talks about forecasting and econometric modeling and stuff. So why don't you apply for the job, which I did and I got it. So there I was doing subscriber forecasting for, uh, for HBO. You know, there's a famous saying, I think it was, I can't remember who said it, but you know, he said, I, I, I never... 
I never do any forecasting, especially when it's about the future. And and that is, you know, pretty much something I lived by. Yogi Berra, that's who said it, Yogi Berra, the great baseball player and philosopher. Anyway, I did go over there. I figured I'd work very hard on this job for a couple of years, which I did. And then hopefully I get to something else. And that's pretty much what happened. And that's what got me, you know, to a point where I could, I knew enough people at HBO and I, I felt like I had a presence. I wasn't very high in the organization, but I was at a point where, you know, I could talk to people about my idea. Oh, wow. And forecasting subscribers, et cetera. Is that a guessing game or did you actually use some clients <laughs> behind that? Yeah. You turn the lights down, you get some tea, and then you throw the tea leaves on the table. No, it's not a guessing game. It's, although, in retrospect, it, it probably was. What happened, it's an interesting story. The, the guy before me who was responsible for forecasting, who ultimately became the chairman of Time Warner, I, I love that, and very smart guy, he had done some forecasting where he basically said, you know, in five years, home box office will be in every home in America, you know. And that was totally wrong, which is why they looked for somebody else to do it. No, I, I built a model. I built a model. And, you know, building models, as probably some of your audience knows, is less about getting a credible model and more about digging into the data in a way that tells you what's going, you know, gives you some hints as to what's going on. And that's what it did. I saw what the problem was. I saw what I saw what everybody was, kind. they kind of knew, but they were kind of missing what the aggregate result was, which is the aggregate result was, was that eventually HBO's growth was going to hit a wall, was going to stop. And the reason for that is every time they launched in a cable system, they'd get a spurt of growth in that cable system. Like 60% of the system, people in the system would take HBO because it was new and they try it out. And then it would like kind of decline to 25 or 30%. But then they'd also have another system going and that went to 60%. So the problem was when the building slowed down, when the, when the distribution slowed down, they stopped getting those pops. And of course, they're, they're, they stopped growing. And that was the insight that led me to a better forecast. Let me put it that way. And also, like any forecast, it leads to policy. Well, policy, it's, I don't know what you call it. It's not so much policy in, in the private sector. It's um, strategy. It leads to strategy. And HBO definitely changed their strategy as a result of that insight. So, Art, talk me through doing forecasting for HBO to your step that you took to actually come up with this idea of Comedy Central. Well, as I said, you know, it really kind of, you can draw the draw connections to my initial insight at, in business school saying, how come there's no comedy channel when there's all these other channels? And then, you know, I, I spoke about it to a lot of people for a long time and I would get, would get responses like, uh, you know, good idea, but it'll never work because dot, dot, dot. And I found that was an interesting process because what it did was it allowed me before I even talked to anybody who might have any real possibility of helping me make it happen, it, it, it helped me see what the problems would be, you know, see what the objections would be. And a lot of people said, you know, comedy, very expensive. And I said, okay, how do you do this cheaply to start? That was the first, you know, one of the things I had to think about. Because yeah, you know, listen, you do a comedy show, you need a billion writers, writers are expensive. And that's why comedy, original comedy, especially was considered expensive. But I said, okay, well, we don't have to do original comedy, we can do 
We can license films and television, older films and television. And then I also thought, well, we don't have to use the whole thing. We can get clips from film and television that are funny. Because everybody, even in those days, before there was YouTube, they'd say, hey, remember that scene where, you know, in the Three Stooges, Mo says to Larry, you know, I mean, that's how a lot of comedy was discussed. And I thought, yeah, that'd be great just to show the scene. So I figured out a way to do that, which was a little bit difficult, but I figured it out. So by the time I actually got a chance to pitch somebody in authority at HBO, I knew a lot about what the what the objections would be. But I... <laughs> But I wasn't ready for what actually happened. What actually happened is I I had been, as I said, working at HBO and forecasting subscribers, which I didn't really want to do, but I did a good job. They moved me to an area called new business development, which you think was interested in developing all kinds of new channels, but it wasn't. They just wanted to develop one kind of new channel, which was a pay television channel called Festival, which was like HBO, but it had no sex violence or bad language. Think about that as a selling proposition. <laughs> Very difficult. But HBO's research had shown that the people who not who were not taking HBO weren't taking it because either it was too expensive or it had too much sex violence, violence and bad language. So basically they put together a kind of disnified, disney, you know, airplane version, we used to call it, of, of HBO where they didn't have any, you know, tough stuff. I've, I've never heard of that channel. That's because it failed miserably even before it got off the ground. We, <laughs> we did some tests. But you know what? You know, interestingly, you know, you work on a failure and it, it mm. failed within, I don't know, nine months of launching the test. You find out so much about how business works. And for me, it was a great learning experience because they put me on the road and they said, okay, you're going to do some research. You're going to be our, you know, strategy guy. You're going to do some research on how people consume television, what they're looking for, whether they think this is a good idea. And it gave me a chance to talk to a, lots and lots of people about television. And I learned a lot about what people are looking for in television. And every once in a while, I'd mention, hey, you know, what do you think of an all comedy network? And they'd say, ah, that sounds cool. So at least I, you know, I started to get a feel for whether there was an audience for something like that. Of course, everybody's concept of an all comedy channel was different. And that, that showed me that, you know, you, you, you had opportunity and you had options. You know, you could do an all comedy channel that was all sitcoms. You could do an all comedy channel that was all stand up comedy or somewhere in between. You know, so it was really, it really became clear to me that it was a programming exercise. Now, I wasn't a programmer, but again, I had a lot of time to think about what a comedy channel looked like. So, festival fails as I had predicted early on, partly because Disney, remember I said it was a Disney-fied channel? Yeah. Disney looked at what we were doing and said, hey, we're programming all day for kids. We can program at night for grownups and put some movies on, which is what they did. And mm. guess what? That's what Disney is today, right? You know, actually they went beyond that, but that's another story. So I had nothing to do. And I started writing up my idea for a comedy network just because I had nothing to do. And then I said, you know what? I got. The, I really kind of have a good feeling for what this thing is. So I am going to go pitch the head of programming at HBO. Her name was Bridget Potter. Now, this is all in my book. My book is a memoir, meaning it doesn't just tell the story, you know, as a history. It tells a story from my point of view, and it's very personal. You know, I tell when I talk about my successes and failures. So anyway, I, I, I talk about going down to see Bridget, who was the head of programming. And I was like, she was at the top of the org chart. I was at like the bottom. 
you know, I had no real profile. But it was a small company. Bridget said, yeah, sure, come down, talk to me about your idea, whatever it is. So I sat down and I said, hey, Bridget, listen, I think HBO is very strong in comedy. And I think that it would be great if we could start an all-comedy cable channel, 24-7 comedy. And she said, stop right there. That terrible idea. And I'm going to tell you why. And she spent 15 minutes saying, you know, listen, do you think any decent comedian would be on an all-comedy channel? Do you think anybody wants to watch that much comedy? Do you think there's not enough comedy on television already? She went on for, you know, a long time. And <laughs> despite the fact that I could have responded, she really didn't give me a chance. And I saw what was going on. And I said, at the end, when she said, okay, all right, thanks for coming in. You obviously don't know very much about television because you're new here relatively and see you around. So I said, thank you and left. But I went back to my office thinking, you know, she's wrong. Okay, so we're not going to start it here. Somebody's going to start it. And I went back to working on my plan for a comedy network. At that point thinking, okay, HBO said no, essentially. So I am going to staple this plan to my resume, to my CV, and send it out to all the other entertainment companies, see if anybody's interested. Figuring I'd get a job even if they weren't interested because I was kind of done at HBO. As luck would have it, my boss's boss came wandering by and said, hey, what are you doing? You got nothing to do. What, what are you working on? <laughs> I said, just this idea I had. He says, let me see. So I showed it to him and he said, wow, all comedy channel. I really like this. It's a cool idea. Let's go see, you know, we should really get, get this in front of the chairman of HBO. I said, great. He said, right now, let's go. I said, right now? I had no presentation. I realized that <laughs> what happened with Bridget was not something I wanted to repeat. So yeah. I was really like, oh my gosh, I can't just walk in there. And let me tell you about the chairman of HBO. His name was Michael Fuchs. He had just been named as the most powerful man in Hollywood by the New York Times two weeks earlier. Now, this guy, if I got in the elevator with Michael Fuchs, I would break into a cold sweat because he's the kind of guy who could, you know, snap his fingers and you never work in the business again. Very powerful guy. And remember, I am a very unpowerful guy. How, how old were you around this time? I was, I was about 30, I think. I was about right. 30. You know, I wasn't like, hey, listen, I wasn't born yesterday. It wasn't like I was 19 years old. And my experience in economics had given me, uh, and everywhere else to that point, has given me you know, a certain presence and a certain ability to talk extemporaneously uh, about whatever I had to talk about. I had given millions of presentations and I had dealt with very powerful people more when I was an economist than, than before that, than after that, rather. Anyway, so I walk in, we walk into Michael's office and he looks up and says, what are you guys doing here? You don't have an appointment. And uh, <laughs> immediately I'm knocked back on my heels, but my boss's boss said, look, Art has a great idea. He wants to talk to you about it. Give us five minutes. So he said, okay. He listened to me talk about the comedy network, my comedy channel idea. And he said, I like it. It sounds, it sounds cool. He said, maybe we should do some research and see if it works and do some demo tapes and things like that. He says, so I'm going to team you up with the head of comedy at HBO and we'll see what happens. Now, again, it wasn't a green light. It wasn't like, okay, let's do it. It was, let's see if it makes sense to do it. Now, that's an appropriate thing for the chairman to say, but it was amazing that he said it. That wasn't Bridget, was it? No, that was not Bridget. 
That was Michael Fuchs. That was the chairman of HBO. Bridget worked for him. And by the way, he did He did ask in the middle. He said, well, has Bridget seen this? What does Bridget say? You know, because that's what I said. She was lukewarm. <laughs> oh, wow. I thought he was going to pair you up with Bridget for a moment. He paired me up with, again, the head of comedy programming who worked for Bridget. So Bridget quickly heard about this, I guess. Anyway, and that's how I got started. Yeah. Wow. And so... You paired up with this head of comedy. Yeah, his name was too smiley, appropriately enough. Uh, <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> but he wasn't, he wasn't the kind of guy who smiled a lot. He was, he was a pretty tough guy. The first thing he said to me when I met him, he didn't say, hi, Art, nice to meet you. He said, what the hell do you know about comedy? And I said, not a lot, other than I like it. And, you know, I'm talking to a guy who had been in the comedy business for 10 years. Comedy was a business. And I hadn't really quite thought of it that way. But, you know, he knew all the managers, the comedians. He knew everything about comedy. I knew nothing about the business of comedy. Students say, come on, Art, I'll take you under my wing. I'll show you the ropes a little bit. We'll have a good time together. He said, what do you know about comedy? And he said it a lot. You know, <laughs> I think he was kind of a little ticked off that, you know, he was being plucked out of his day job for some period of time, you know, to see if this comedy network would work. Now, of course, the idea of a comedy network to stew was a, a good thing, sort of. But remember, he's working for the most powerful entity in comedy at that time. We're talking about a startup, which was not likely to be so powerful in comedy because it wouldn't, you know, it'd be a startup. It would be small, wouldn't have a lot of resources. And Stu saw that immediately. So, he worked on it grudgingly, but warmed to the task. Anyway, Stu and I put together some more information. We did some more research. We did a demo tape, which he essentially produced, and did a presentation. Mostly I did the presentation. Stu wasn't big on presentations. I did a presentation to the executives at Comedy, at, I'm sorry, at HBO. And at the end of the presentation, Michael Fuchs went around the room to all his chief, you know, all his executives and said, what do you think of this? And he looked them right in the eye and they had to say either they liked it or they didn't like it. And they all said, oh, I think it's great. You know, this is, sounds terrific. Sounds great. And I often wondered why he did that. But as I was writing my memoir, I realized why he did that. He wanted buy-in from all of his executives before he launched this thing because he didn't want somebody to wander into his office saying, you know, this thing's not working. And I knew it from the beginning. I mean, at that presentation, I just said to myself, this thing will never work. He wanted each one of those executives to commit in front of everybody else that they liked it and that they would be supportive. Very clever. Wow. That's great leadership, isn't it? Because you always find that, especially in a team of big personalities, they've often got their own opinions. And to really get people to buy in and confirm that, I think is is brilliant. Yeah, I love that. And so beyond those initial meetings, was it all plain sailing after that? Or did you have any other challenges along the way? Because you know, the title of your book is, is really interesting. The fact that you started Comedy Central and you lost your sense of humor. So I was wondering, yes. where, where did that come into it? Okay, I'm going to tell you about that. We put the channel together. We launched. I, I you know, I... I could talk for three hours, but it's, it, unfortunately, it's a, 
it's all in the book, so you can read it there. So I won't give you every moment between that meeting and launching. But let me tell you, anything that could go wrong did. I mean, we were just constantly pushed around by events. And one of the one of the big things that went wrong before we launched was we lost a lot of our programming. I, again, we we were going to use clips. We had to get approval from the Directors Guild, the Writers Guild, all those guys to use short clips. Otherwise, you had to pay for them. But we were going to do it, use them promotionally. And they liked that idea because, hey, promotion, more work for our members. Great. They all bought into it. We started clipping like crazy. We started watching every movie, every television show, every stand-up routine we can get our hands on and taking pieces out of it. That was done by a group of producers we called the Cliptomaniacs. The Cliptomaniacs spent, you know, 22 hours a day doing that. So we ended up with a huge pile of clips in our closet, you know, that we were going to put on for the channel. Six weeks before we launch, the DGA calls and says, we changed our mind. We're not giving you permission. So all of those clips, all of our programming, this is six weeks before we launch. We couldn't use and I remember going back and telling my staff this, and they said, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? This is a disaster. And I said, plan B. They said, what's plan B? I said, I don't know, but we better figure it out fast because it's not like we can postpone the launch. We just got to do something. So we did. <laughs> and we launched with very little programming. <laughs> and I'm laughing, but it wasn't funny. We got creamed by the press after launch. It's not funny. What is HBO thinking? By the way, we called it the Comedy Channel at, the, at that point. It wasn't called Comedy Central yet. It was the Comedy Channel. And the launch was basically a disaster in every way, shape, or form. I mean, it was just very hard. Somehow, I kept my spirits up. And one of the ways I kept going, one of the ways I kept persevering, that's the only way, and kept everybody else on board, was to look for little tiny glimmers of success. And believe me, they were just, you know, it was a match in outer space. You know what I'm talking about? There were, there's not a whole lot of success going on, but there were little glimmers of success. And I always pumped those up. I always said, Hey, look, this is going great. Somebody liked it. Somebody said, anyway, that's what I did. But three months into it, I got called into Michael Fuchs office. Remember him, the most powerful guy in Hollywood who said yes. And he said, you know what? It took a comedy channel to get me to lose my sense of humor. And he wasn't laughing and I wasn't laughing. I was in there with some other executives. Nobody was laughing. And I thought, yeah, you know, this could really make us lose our sense of humor. And that's how the, that's where the title of the book came. Got it. I had assumed it was something that had uh, hit you so hard. That it You'd completely lost your sense of humor, but for the boss of the channel to, uh, be in that state, I can imagine uh, how that must have felt. It was it was really being called on the carpet by the boss saying, you know, either put it together or you're in, in deep, deep trouble. And um, he was right. I mean, that's what you do in situations like that. Mm -hmm. I hadn't stopped doing everything I could. I, I, I would go to work every day saying, okay, what we can, what can we do more of that's working and what can we do less of that's not working? I mean, that's mm -hmm. how I approach it. I also assumed every day that I was going to be fired and they were going to shut the channel down. I mean, that, no, no, I, I know you're laughing, but one of the reasons I wrote the memoir was because I wanted to convey, especially to younger people who've been watching Comedy Central and 
for whom it's been there all their lives, essentially, you know, teenagers or people in their 20s. Comedy Central turned 30 years old last year. That's that's a milestone. So there were a lot of people who probably just assumed Comedy Central was either always there or had launched and been an instant success. It was not an instant success. It was an instant failure. And it was due to not only my efforts, but the efforts of, you know, the hundreds of people who were working on it at the time and the thousands of people who've worked on it since. And it became such a big success. And that's why I wanted to write the memoir. And that's why I titled it while I did, I subtitled it the way I did, because it, I wanted to convey the difficulty uh, in launching. You're right. I was probably one of those that had never really thought about where this channel had come from, but it was such a great channel that you don't even question it. You just think it would have been someone with a genius idea who fulfilled a a gap in the market and the rest is history. So Art, in terms of your first real major success with the channel, like what was the moment when you felt that, you know, we've done it. This is proof now that everything you were thinking before had all come together. What was that moment? Surprisingly, it was before we launched the channel. We were, we had a head writer at the channel, comedy writer, and uh, his name was Eddie Gorodetsky. He's still a, a, a sitcom writer in LA today, a very funny guy, but a kind of a crazy guy. And he came in one day and he said, hey, we really, he talked like that because he smoked a lot. We really need a, a show where comedians watch TV or movies and make jokes. During the movie. I said, oh, that sounds, yeah, we all said, that sounds like a good idea, Eddie. Let's put that together. So they started working on that. And then about two weeks later, in the mail, we got a a videotape. And it was from some guys in Minneapolis. And they said, hey, we hear you guys are starting a comedy channel. Is this something that would be interesting to you? And on the videotape was Mystery Science Theater 3000. I don't know if you or your your, um, audience knows, but that was exactly the show that Eddie described. It was a guy and two puppets sitting in front of bad movies, making jokes about the movie. And I thought, you know what? Here's a show that would never get on the air anywhere else. And it came to us without us looking for it. It's brilliant. It was very funny. I mean, if you haven't seen it, look it up, watch a couple of them. They were great. And it went on to, it's still around today, actually. It went to, it went on for years at comedy. It went to sci-fi. It went to, it, it's been on lots of channels. Brilliantly funny. We flew out to Minneapolis the next day. We met the guys. I never laughed so hard in my life. They were really brilliant. And we signed them up. We, we bought the show. And that was the first time I thought, you know what? This channel's going to work. Got to work. If, if great comedy is going to find us, it'll work. So that was the first time. I, I think, you know, there were other, as I said, moments along the way. And, and by the way, MST3K, we dined out on them for a a year. You know, every time somebody says, well, the channel's not working together. Hey, Mystery Science Theater is like a hit. You know, everybody's talking about it, which wasn't quite true, but we we pretended they were. I, I think the next, not the next, but a major turning point for us was a Mystery Science Theater-like show that we did. Somebody came up with the idea. We had a, we had a group called the, the Buzz Committee. And our job, it was made up of several people from around the network. And our job was to figure out, hey, how can we hang on to like things that are happening now in the world or in the country, more to the point, that can get us some press? You know, for example, Johnny Carson, you know that show, Johnny Carson? He had his last show in 1992. We launched in 1989. And we said, what can we do to kind of like 
get involved with that. Like make it, you know, because it's a big comedy show. We should, we should have something to say about it. And someone said, I know we should go dark. We should have nothing on the channel except a sign that says we are watching Johnny Carson's last show. And so should you. <laughs> and we thought, well, that's a crazy idea. Let's do it. So we did it. And we actually got a sponsor for it, Tabasco, McElhaney Tabasco sauce. And we put the Tabasco sauce bottle on a stool, shot of the Tabasco bottle, and a sign that said, we're watching, you know, blah, blah, blah. Johnny Carson mentioned us in his last show. He said, you know, the guys at Comedy Central, God bless them, you know, they're watching my show and they did this. And, and we're like, I can't, but we can't believe he actually mentioned us. That's how... We try to get in front of the world, in front of the audience, and make our brand. So the idea that we came up with at the, with the Buzz Committee, it was not my idea. I, I only had one or two good ideas in my life. Albert Einstein said that too once. So like Albert Einstein, I had one or two good ideas in my life. But somebody said, hey, let's do, you know what? Why don't we get some comedians to talk over the president's speech during the State of the Union address? And we said, that's a crazy idea. Let's, Let's do it. it. <laughs> so we got some comedians, including notably Al Franken, who went on to become a senator. But Al Franken at the time was on Saturday Night Live, a very famous comedian who was work, used to work in live. We got Al Franken. Billy Kimball was another guy, and he produced it. And that's what we did. George Bush was giving a speech. Al Franken talked over it, and they rehearsed a lot, by the way. They did it live. It was hysterically funny. And... uh that's when people started saying, hey, and, and the LA Times in particular, I remember their article saying, you know, those guys at Comedy Central, they are doing something really interesting that doesn't get done anywhere else. That's when I knew, okay, can't fail, you know, can't fail. We've got too much going for us at this point. You know, at that point, we had an audience and a brand that we were sort of, we, we weren't profitable, but we were, you know, we had advertisers and distribution. So, you know, things were kind of going our way. And that was uh, three or four years after we launched. 